0: One of the most packed weeks of uh, prospect and prospect-centric events on the baseball calendar is behind us, and we welcome you into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball, to talk about all of it and more. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Uh, what's going on, man? You're recovered?
1: Uh, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, um, because the you know the minor league season never stops. So we're, we're right back, picking right back up with it, and I'll get into this later during our MILB MLB TV Picks of the Week. But I am heading down to Durham this weekend uh, to go see the Bulls and, and to write up some stuff from that and cover that. So are you looking forward to that? Are you planning that? Driving down with uh, our, our colleague Kelsey Hennigan uh, from New York City all the way down to Durham, North Carolina. So that'll be Fun. Uh but yeah, just just when you think it's like, oh, the we're the in the calm after the storm, a new storm picks up. And we'll talk about what else is on the horizon here in a few segments.
0: We will. Uh futures game now in the rearview mirror, the the uh major league baseball first year player draft as well, the all-star game, the American League with yet another victory uh over the national league. The NL got out to such a good start against Shane mcclanahan in the first uh inning i was like well this is gonna be this team's rolling they are cruising and then they didn't have a hit until the eighth after that first inning and uh the al took the win but we have so much to discuss with you on this week's episode of the show before the show benjamin hill will join us coming up a little while later we've got a a fantastic ghost of the miners from josh jackson as well and uh if you would like to get in touch with us podcast at milb.com and uh, you can find us on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-P. I am at Tyler Maughan. Uh So let's kick it off, man. The Futures game and the draft as noted in the books. Uh, I feel like we should talk draft second because it'll keep mm-hmm. you tuned in. Uh <laughs> there are some really interesting storylines that came out of the draft. Uh but let's talk about the MLB All-Star Futures Game uh in 2022 in which we of course did our uh draft last week. We had an extremely close vote in which my uh accidental vote for Sam Dykstra tipped the scales. 50.4% for team Sam, 49.6% for me. Um really, I mean, Sam Won the electoral college. I probably won the popular vote, let's be honest. But uh... <laughs> this is literally
1: a popular vote. What are you talking about?
0: Um, but I don't have un- any state data on this. What are you talking about? Unfortunately, um, those two teams did not actually play against each other. Instead, it was the American League versus the National League, and the AL took a six to four victory uh in the futures game, as well as winning the All-Star game. Uh, the American League led by uh some impressive performances uh throughout the day. Jason Dominguez with a home run. Uh, A guy who I feel like we're going to be talking about a lot more as this season continues to go on, Uh, Matt Walner, the Minnesota Twins organization, hit a home run. Shea Langeleers hit a home run, Um, but the AL just able to edge the NL 6-4. to What were your biggest takeaways from the Futures game?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's only a seven-inning game, um, which is – still a little bit of a disappointment because we only get to see these guys for seven, seven innings. And some of these guys who pitched really, really well, we only got to see for a couple batters like Jack Leiter had a clean inning, which was great to see given his double-A struggles this year. Emerson Hancock who's somebody who's dropped out of our top 100, um, you know, had a great inning himself, showed some really good sinkers, looked like his stuff was back, but again, it's only one inning. How much do you pour into that? So when you think about like, what are my takeaways from this game? I think the big thing that stands out in my mind was the one, Biggest highlight of the day, the the highlight that went viral across all of baseball Twitter, not just prospect Twitter, Mason Wynn, uh, who we said coming into the game has maybe the best arm in baseball right now, at least among position players. It's an easy 80 arm Threw a ball across the the infield from shortstop at 100.5 miles per hour. He hit triple digits just without a, much of a windup, just collected a clean ball at shortstop, fired it over at 100.5 to Pretty Mark antos. Pretty good. And it's that's that sounds great, hitting triple digits, but just to put that into context, the highest or the fastest throw ever recorded in the StatCast era was set just recently by yeah, Neil like Cruz. Three weeks top ago. Prospect. Yeah, that was 97.8 miles per hour. So this is not just like edging it. He cleared that bar significantly. Uh, If you've seen Mason, when you knew this was maybe in the tank, and I'm sure there was a little added adrenaline in that for him. But this is just such a perfect moment from this game, because the whole point of this is to show you something you haven't seen before. Likely, maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you knew this already. I mean, you're probably into prospects as it is you might have known about Mason Wynn's arm. But if you're like a Cardinals fan, it's like, oh, I've heard about this Mason Wynn. He was a draft pick a couple of years ago. Could be pretty good. And then all of a sudden he unleashes 100.5 miles an hour. That's going to make you sit up straight on your couch. Like that's exactly what the futures game should be. You talked about three homers between Jason Dominguez, Matt Walner, uh, and Shea Langoliers. Uh, Really great to see Jason Dominguez do that. I know there are some questions about what whether he should be a top 100 prospect anymore. Uh, we got some news afterwards that he's going to high A Hudson Valley. Uh, so that's good. He'll get a new taste. He's been at Tampa for the last two years. A uh, big deal for him. Matt Walner hitting that home run. And again, this is something that if you're a Twins fan, you should be paying attention to because his home run was at 115.8 miles per hour exit velocity. Now that sounds great. It's 20 miles an hour above what the hard hit threshold is. Um, but just again, for more context, the highest exit velo on a homer by a Twins player this year is 113.4 miles per hour by Carlos Correa. So Matt Wallner's power could probably already play in the majors. There are some questions about everything else, but given what he was showing in batting practice, based on what I've heard from folks who were there, and then to unleash that, uh, three batters after Jason Dominguez had homered, it, it was just a perfect version of what the Futures game could be. Um, again, would like to see it go nine innings. We'd like to see at least one pitcher go more than an inning, uh, more than three or four batters. But uh, in terms of tools on display, it was all there in L.A. over the weekend.
0: Pretty cool stuff. Um, And that kicked off a packed week in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium uh, and in downtown LA uh, near the former Staples Center, which has such a dumb current name that I'm not going to say it. Um, The major league (laughs) first year player draft opened on Sunday and the 2022 draft uh, came with its share of shock, especially in the first round. Uh, We were anticipating normalcy through those first couple of picks Um, but the third pick was a stunner and uh, I think it probably You know, behooves us most uh, to talk about guys like Jackson Holiday and Drew Jones before we get into the the shocker of the pick. But Holiday goes first overall. He was the second-rated prospect according to MLB Pipelines' uh, top 250 draft prospects going into the draft. Drew Jones, who was number one, goes second overall to the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, who continue to add a whole lot of impressive talent to their minor league system. Uh, And then Tamar Johnson, who was number four. He goes fourth overall, and Elijah Green, who was ranked number three, he goes fifth overall. So the top four ranked talents went in the top five picks. Um, let's talk about Jackson Holiday first. I think, you know, it was always going to be kind of a toss-up between him and Drew Jones. I know for a while Tamar Johnson was in that conversation and Elijah Green as well. Uh, but for Jackson Holiday to go first overall, uh, first of all, makes me feel ancient because I think I told this story a couple weeks ago. I remember being at a press conference at Coors Field when he was there at like three years old, and now he's a First overall selection in the MLB draft, but you know, the, the Orioles building things up the middle, they've already got Adley Rushman behind the plate. Uh, Jackson holiday now is a a potential long-term shortstop. Uh, The rest of the talent that's coming up in that system, they've got a lot. Um, And then drew Jones going to Arizona. The D backs have been able to pull in a lot of talent somewhat quietly over the last few years.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned it that way, and I, I don't think that got framed as often as I would have liked it to. This is this is immediately how my thought process went too. Is when you look at who the Orioles infield could be in a few years, Gunnar Henderson is one of the breakout prospects of the year this year. You can make a case for it, him being a top five. I know some places have even said he might be the top overall prospect in baseball. We'll see how things are going to shake out when we do our midseason update, but he's been really, really special this year as a shortstop slash third baseman. Jordan Westberg has entered the top 100 conversation there. So if you have a future where, you know, it's already two, two fourths, one half of your infield could be top 100 prospects. And now you add the number one overall pick Jackson holiday, who I think is a more, Surefire shortstop than either of those two other guys. So Westberg could be second base, Henderson could be third. That's what you know. That's how winning franchises are built. Now this is far away. Jackson Holiday is only 18 years old, but given all the tools that are there, and I think I still prefer Drew Jones as a player. But Jackson Holiday hit 685 this year. It's high school ball. It's Oklahoma. I get it. That's a, that's really special to do. He broke With like 17 Rale-Mutos. home runs, right? Something like that, yeah. He's, I mean, he slugged 1,300. That's not his OPS. That was his slugging percentage. He broke JT Realmuto's high school record for hits with 89 in 41 games. He was averaging over two hits a game. Like, guys just did not know how to get him out. And he had as much rocket fuel in terms of what his profile was as anybody in this draft class. Uh, I don't think he was necessarily like a mid-first-round pick come March or April. And now, all of a sudden, he was in the conversation for number one, and he goes number one. Uh, it's a really special – Collection of tools, all of them grayed out as at least above average. He's a plus runner, again, plus hit tool from the left side, which is not something you always see from shortstops. Um, it's just really unique, and, and I think he plugs really well into what the framework of the, of the Orioles pipeline is right now. So that's really interesting. And you mentioned Jones. My first thought process immediately went to, you could get an outfield of Drew Jones, Alec Thomas, and Corbin Carroll. Completely homegrown. We'll see how, how they are as hitters. All three of those guys are quality plus-plus-plus-fielders. Plus like, good luck trying to hit the ball in the grass in Arizona if all those guys make it to Phoenix someday. Uh, obviously, we know Alec Thomas is already there. Corbin Carroll's knocking on the door now with A. Drew Jones may be the most tooled-up player in this entire draft. It's no surprise to say he's a really, really good center fielder, really good runner, kind of like his dad earlier in his career. The bat, I think, is going to play as well. Um, so it, it – We've had some mild shocks in the past in terms of who goes number one overall. And I know last week we kind of talked about, is it Drew Jones or the field? And I was leaning towards Drew Jones. Jackson Hollidays could end up being the best player in this draft. It it was much closer than that. Um, It was not necessarily, you know, Drew Jones number one with a bullet. Uh, So really interesting for those two systems. And like you said, they're very dynamic systems and they got even more dynamic with those two picks.
0: Um one thing on that Dbacks organization before we talk about uh some people later on in that first round. Yeah, you mentioned um, you know, Alec Thomas, Corbin Carroll, and now Drew Jones. They've also got Jordan Lawler. Uh their top their first round picks from the last four years uh, could be top 100 prospects immediately um, because 2019, they got Corbin Carroll in the first round 16th overall. They got Blake Walston in the first round that year, 26th overall. Uh, Jordan Lawler was their first round pick in 2021, sixth overall. Now you've got a guy in Drew Jones uh, who is a bona fide star in the making, but one guy who I also want to touch on Tamar uh, Johnson, who was asked, what do you want pirates fans to know? And he said, I want them to know they just got the best player in the draft. I love that kid. Uh, Jamar Johnson's awesome. I've gotten a chance to watch him a little bit with USA Baseball over the years on some of their youth teams. Um, But he is just so talented. And his level of not just confidence, but um, the the intelligence that he brings with him as, you know, saying, I want people to know I'm not just a baseball player. I take my studies really seriously. I'm a scholar athlete. Uh, I'm somebody who thinks about things outside of just baseball. He is such an impressive young guy. And to add him to a pirate system that's really started to kind of rejuvenate itself, I mean, they got five top 100 prospects as of right now. Uh, If they can come to a deal with Tamar Johnson, they'll have a sixth, uh, presumably, um, or possibly, I guess I should say. But that guy has such a bright future and is so much fun, and he just provides – he, he almost, and this is obviously very high praise to put on somebody, but in terms of his charisma, his talent, um, and the way he is an effusive ball player, he kind of makes me think of Julio Rodriguez in a way where I think Pirates fans are going to fall in love with Tamar Johnson as soon as he starts making that climb.
1: Man, I love that. I have I had not put that together, but yeah, I, I had a conversation with Termar Johnson last year at the PDP League. And that's when he was a candidate to go number one overall. And uh, I asked him, you know, what are your thoughts on that? He's like, listen, that whether I go number one overall or not is not a big deal to me. I want to be a Hall of Famer. Like, I don't want to just be an average major leaguer. That's amazing. I am in this to someday go to Cooperstown. He said that when he was, I think, 17. And we should say there's a reason why he says all this stuff. He was the best pure hitter in this draft. Yeah. There are some questions about whether he's going to be shortstop or second base. They're probably going to move him to second base, um, but the power plays really well f- for his size. It's not just pure hitting, but right. it is really, really good pure hitting. Uh, and it, it, like he's going to be really special in that pirate system. I, you know, looking at where they stand right now, I would probably make him their top prospect over a Henry Davis, even though Henry Davis was number one overall um henry davis had some injury issues this year whatever but jamar johnson his ceiling is really really special and for him to know that and to play into that and have that carry on to the field because if you watch him play he's one of the loudest talkers i've ever heard in a good way he's always chattering with people he's that perfect middle infield prospect who's yeah. like i'm commanding this like i'm i'm gonna be communicating with my shortstop so we know he how is we're a pulling things.
0: captain in the making You know, um, if that's a thing that the Pirates wanted to do in any sort of formal way, he would be the guy that you would look at as, oh, he's going to inherit that mantle
1: at some point. Yeah. So uh, obviously we're, we're big fans of Tamar Johnson here. Can't wait to see him get his pro career going. And I have very few doubts that he's going to hit the ground running. It might just be defensive issues that hold him back from climbing pretty quick. Not next year, not two years, but for a high school kid, he could certainly move fast.
0: Uh, a line from his uh, evaluation on MLB pipeline is quote, one scout gave him a double hall of famer comparison by calling him a combination of Wade Box's plate discipline and Vladimir Guerrero seniors bat to ball skills. So you got a good one uh, pirates fans. So now let's get to the shock of the first round. And that was the third overall pick uh, of the draft. We had a conversation last week is Kumar rocker going to be a first round pick. Not only was he a first-round pick, but Kumar Rocker went to the Texas Rangers third overall. The upside, obviously, is massive for the former Vanderbilt ace or one of the Vanderbilt aces, and we'll talk about that because that's an interesting element uh, to this selection by the Rangers. But uh, a guy who did not come to a deal with the Mets after they took him in the first round last year, 10th overall, uh, there were issues that the Mets were concerned about in his post-draft physical uh, because – Kumar Rocker did not participate in the pre-draft combine. He was not guaranteed portions of the original slot value of where he was drafted, all those sorts of things. So the deal ends up falling through with the Mets. Kumar Rocker elects not to go back to Vanderbilt. Instead, he pitches this year uh, an independent ball with the Tri-City Valley Cats. And demonstrates that he's he's healthy. The velocity is still there. The stuff is still there. Uh, but man, we were not anticipating third overall for Kumar Rocker. He now jumps into the Rangers organization where he joins his former. Top of the rotation fellow ace Jack Leiter, who is already in that system with double A Frisco. Jack Leiter's had his struggles this year, but a guy who's still young and obviously uh, you know, what a bright future he's got ahead of him. Um, your thoughts when the Kumar Rocker pick went out. I know uh pretty much everybody was was tweeting their shock, uh, and you were not um somebody who was uh was absent from that category. We just I mean we thought like, well, you know, if somebody wants to go for him in the first round. Maybe there's going to be a steal in the back of the first round, whatever it is. And the Rangers just, they jumped on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a good lesson in many ways because um, I, I was shocked by it. And then a few hours later I tweeted out again, like it's been three hours since they made the pick. I'm still shocked that they did that. Um, having number three overall, you know, they could have taken an Elijah green. They could have gone with. Uh, some of these other names on the board, a Brooks Lee, a Jacob Berry, uh, you know, Tamar Johnson was technically on the board for them. They could have gone Tamar Johnson, although I didn't see his name tied to them too often. Uh, and it still was shocking. I-, I I still have to say that because one thing we should say, like, uh, Kumar Rocker did have sh- shoulder surgery. That's one thing he shared with the clubs this year is that something came up in the Mets physical Sounded like they never revealed what it was. His side never came out and said what, what it was either. But going into this draft, they said, hey, by the way, he had shoulder surgery in the fall. We want everybody to know that. Here are the physicals. Here are the medicals. So you guys know that. Obviously, the Rangers were comfortable enough, having seen that, to take him number three overall. And I thought, okay, well, that's still crazy. But what needed to come out afterwards was the agreement that they had. The, because it this is... Different than other sports. This is not just always drafting best player available, although that's always what I'm going to advocate for. Bonus pools come into play here. Now, the Rangers didn't have a second-round pick because they signed Corey Seager. They didn't have a third-round pick because they signed Marcus Semyon. I I, I can't remember if those were flipped, but either way, they didn't have a second-round pick or a third-round pick. So you would think they needed to make a big swing with their first selection, or they could go the route that they did and they get Kumar Rocker They agreed to a bonus that's already come out. It's already been reported that it's $5.2 million, which is a haircut of $2.3 million. That's $2.3 million in bonus pool savings that they could use later down the line. And guess what? In the fourth round, the guy who was still available because nobody thought they could afford him was Brock Porter, who MLB Pipeline had as the best healthy pitcher in this draft. So the Texas Rangers end up selecting Brock Porter in the fourth round. Seems like they're going to work something out with him. That that hasn't been announced. It hasn't been official yet. We'll see. But you can use those savings on Rocker to get Porter. And now all of a sudden you have two of the best right-handed pitchers in the entire draft, despite not having a second or third rounder. It seems like they played it really well. Now, Rocker, despite the stuff coming back, it's still a risk. Good on him. He gets a bonus right. that's actually bigger than the one that he initially agreed to with the Mets last year. So this whole process seemed to have worked out pretty well for him. And you can see why he would tell the Rangers, yeah, I will take $5.2 million if you want to take me third overall and, and use those savings. Um, but there is still risk there. It, it, you know, he's a guy coming off shoulder surgery. We haven't seen him really pitch into a sixth inning yet. How is that, how is that shoulder going to hold up? He only had a handful of starts with Tri-City. It's going to be years until we really know if this strategy worked, but after day two, when we saw them get Brock Porter, then it looked a lot better. It's still a risk. Anybody could have taken Brock Porter at any time. They could have said, hey, listen, we're going to try. We know you have a number you want to sign at, but uh, we're going to try to sign you anyways. And if not, you're going to go to school. Nobody else tried it. It worked out really well for them. Um, so kudos to the Rangers for having that vision, for having the board play out the way it did. And now we get to see what these guys are going to be like in that Texas system. And uh, you, you were one of these guys who mentioned this, too. And you mentioned it here, but him and lighter, if they are back in the same rotation.
0: That is I just love cool.
1: that storyline. We'll yeah. see what they're it, they could be in the rotation as number four and number five, but that's still gonna be really, really cool.
0: And you know, it was one of the first things that he was asked about um on his MLB network interview which uh was shortly after the Rangers selected him third overall and um you know you kind of wonder what the relationship is sometimes between two guys like that uh who both have such high pedigrees with the the routes that they've got through the amateur ranks in baseball and getting toward the the first round of the draft and all that but the smile on Kumar Rocker's face as soon as he heard Jack Leiter's name definitely made you feel like oh these are two guys who are going to push each other to get to the big leagues be part of that rotation together that's seems like such a cool arrangement um and so congratulations to him and, and to the rangers uh for being able to get somebody like kumar rocker it's going to be a pretty fascinating story to watch as the years unfold for him and for jack leiter um so uh i've only got really one other question for you about the draft we do have a story on mlb pipeline by uh jim callis about the six teams with the best halls in the draft it's always difficult you know in the major league first year player draft to really determine that you can kind of determine it based on the talent that players uh, bringing into an organization uh, will make an impact with, but uh, to project, well, this is going to be the best class by the time these guys are all through with their careers is kind of a fool's errand uh, in baseball. That being said, two things, what stood out about the remainder of the draft to you? Were there any other themes or, or shocks or anything else? Uh, And whose draft class do you like best?
1: Yeah. So the one I'll point out, we talked about the Mets in terms of Kumar rocker and not signing him last year as the 10th overall pick and because they did not sign him they got the 11th overall pick this year and jim wrote about this he actually named them his favorite hall of the draft i would agree with that I, i wrote that for the pipeline newsletter and you know what the met system is right now is it's not thin obviously you have francisco alvarez you have brett Beatty, alex ramirez mark vientos Uh, Ronnie Mauricio, whose stock has dropped a little bit, but still it's, it's very top heavy. It needs to get deeper and it's got significantly deeper through this draft, getting number 11 and then having Kevin Parada, who was probably the best college catcher in the country this year was the best catcher on the board drops to them at number 11. He's a no doubter pick, no doubt pick at, at that spot. They get Jet Williams, who seemed to be a favorite of scouts, shortstop out of Texas, uh, at Texas high school, I should say. And then they get Blade Tidwell in the second round, a Tennessee right hander, who was the number 27 prospect for MLB Pipeline. They got three top 30 prospects, top 30 overall draft prospects in the first two rounds because the, the board just seemed to play to them that way. And they have the bonus pool to make this work. Um, It seems to really set up well for the Mets. I'm going to be really interested to see how Prada works in that system. There are some defensive questions with him, but it's potential plus hit plus power. They would love to have the good problem someday of Francisco Alvarez and Kevin Prada bumping up against each other. That's a concern for years down the line. Uh, But it really seemed to set up well for the Mets. and, And I'm fascinated to see how that group, you know how that system's now going to look with all those guys in it
2: so
0: that's our futures game and draft conversation we've got more things uh related to that stuff as we continue along coming up here in just a little bit we'll preview the second half of the 2022 minor league season but before that benjamin hill swings by the show coming up next
1: Well, on this week, in which so much is happening on one end and not a lot is happening on another, uh, we're going to bring in Benjamin Hill for his usual Ben's Biz Beat segment. Uh, Ben, how are you?
2: Good. Yeah, it's the Ben's Biz Beat. That's the name of my my newsletter. Subscribe to my newsletter, please. And uh, yeah, Sam, I'm doing all right. As we were just talking um, off air, so to speak. Um, Just such a crazy time in baseball recently with the All-Star Game, Futures Game, Draft so much else and I feel a little bit of guilt that everyone else is like at peak busyness and not that I'm not busy within my own stuff it's a very busy time of year for me too but it's not like it has been for you guys Uh, I've mentioned it before but I'm quite the outlier with some of this stuff and uh, yeah I feel a little guilty that I'm not caught up in the madness the way everyone else has been.
1: Well, don't feel guilty. I mean, it's just the way the calendar is working this year. And that brings us to the first thing I want to talk about with you is that this week it is the all-star break for major league baseball. it's also a bit of an all-star break in name only, at least in those first two words uh, for minor league baseball, there are no full season games on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, this week, full season games will return on Friday. Um, and, you know, what is this period kind of like for teams now? Because normally, in a normal year, and I guess we have to go back to 2019 to look at what is a normal year, but there would be like an all-star game in the middle of the season. There would be some sort of break in that, but you might be hosting it. Now it's everybody has four days off. Nobody is playing. Um, What do you think this time is like in front
2: offices? Well, yeah, that's pretty unprecedented. Just a a four day break in the middle of the season uh, with no all-star games. I mean, I think that it's, you know, an obvious thing to say, but, you know, a chance for everyone to just completely kind of uh, not totally drop out. I mean, you're still preparing for the next homestand. There's still tickets to sell. There's still all like the the day-to-day things of running a team. But I imagine this is the time you could take a couple days off, um, get a breather. And um, that's, a, I think, a good thing for a lot of people in the industry and anyone who works in baseball, mm-hmm. as you know, the you know they called the grind for a reason so to have four days off in the middle of it uh, which has not really been how the schedule has been in the past usually when there were all-star games uh, usually wasn't four full days uh, as a break you know um, as an all-star break and then as you mentioned when there are all-star games one of the teams is hosting it usually you know people from the front offices uh, with all the other teams in the league are going to that game Uh, a lot of socialization and uh, still stays pretty busy
1: yeah and 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 You know, considering what I've heard from people talking, you know, in minor league front offices, you hope that they're getting time off and actually taking some time to themselves. It it also sounds like they're just dealing with like a backlog of emails and paperwork and getting all of your ducks in the row for a second half because the season can kind of get away from you real quick. Right.
2: Oh, 100 percent. I mean, you can do all the preparation for opening day. Uh, But then when you're in the grind, uh, those those details really add up day to day to day. And you look at the schedule and you're like, well, we got this homestand and wait, we're doing this theme night. And okay, what do we need for that? I mean, the details and logistics are uh, can be overwhelming for
1: sure. Yeah. And let's address one part of this. And I said this before, that it's an all star break, kind of in name only, at least in the first half of that statement, because there are no all star games this year in minor league baseball. It's a question I get a lot on social media. It's a question you get a lot on social media. Um, so I guess we should just kind of address that in that for right now, you know, we haven't heard any plans for 2023 and there's a long off season ahead. Things could change, who knows, but there are no all-star games this year. It's not something you can just pull out of a hat and say, guess what? We are going to have a Pacific Coast League all-star game next week.
2: No, not at all. And I, I wish I was a little bit more privy to some of exactly why there aren't all-star games right now. As you said, Sam, they, they could come back. Um, but yeah, an all-star game is something that, you know the team that's hosting. You know they're working on that for you know in the in the off season, you know a lot because maybe the game in and of itself. You know if you're uh, hosting the Pacific Coast League All Star Game, which I guess used to be the AAA All Star, yeah, the game, AAA All Star Game, or the Midwest League All Star Game, or the South Atlantic League All Star Game. You know fans are into that. Oh, cool, an All Star Game, but usually those events sell out not just because oh we get to see All Stars from around the league, but because the teams go all out in making those like an entertainment extravaganza with, you know, fireworks, uh, you know, lots of interactive stuff, uh, you know, pre or post game, you know, street carnivals, you know, bounce houses, things outside, live music. You try to make it a, you know, full blown party to the extent you can, um, you know, really showcasing your team, your operation, your ballpark, and you're also showing it off to, you know, the rest of the league, the players, but also, you know, the front offices from the rest of the league. It is great in that regard is you're able to socialize, I mean, socialization is fun and you know, open bars are mm-hmm. great if you end up in one of those, but it really is a, a valuable thing. I think we've been missing in this industry uh, for a little while with COVID and all the restructuring is just these events, whether it's all-star games, you know, industry events, uh, the promo seminar, which is rebranded as the innovator summit, you know, the winter meetings, um, they haven't been happening at all or happening in reduced form. And um, you know, I, I think we're going to get on track, you um, with that kind of stuff, even if it takes new forms, but I, I think the industry is missing the chance just to, to be together in season and off season. Uh, Cause it's important because you know, that's where you get a lot of ideas. That's where you make connections um, in an industry with so much turnover and people moving from team to team. It's a chance to catch up with people um, maybe, uh, you know, look into new opportunities. Uh, and yeah, of course, just like all of us in any of our jobs or a lot of our jobs, you, you do find, you know, the, a lot of, you know, more white collar jobs can be done not in person. And and that's, uh, you know, there's benefits to that, but I I still maintain, I think a lot of people maintain that getting in person um, just really means something and leads to a different level of interaction and uh, camaraderie idea sharing and opportunity. And I just hope we get back to that.
1: Yeah. And if you look at an all-star game from just a, it's, it's not something that can happen virtually, obviously Um, you can name an all-star team. They don't have to play whatever, Uh, But just getting those guys, that recognition, I think is a big part of this. I'm sure, you know, like you were talking about uh, with a lot of industry events right now, COVID played a big role in why there weren't games last year. Logistically, you didn't want to send everybody to one event, then have everybody spread out across the league again. That may have been an issue. Um, And I I think, you know, coming into this year, teams might not like prospects who they're trying to develop just playing a one-off in a game that doesn't really count, doesn't really matter. That being said, an all-star game is a recognition. It's, some, it's a cool event. It's a thing that gets posted on your minor league player page. It's something that you get to carry with you for the rest of your career. Some of these prospects, they may forget about it in a few years. Some guy who's like a 17th Brown pick who you know wasn't even an all-conference player making an all-star team. That matters. That's pretty cool. So not that they're giving us votes in this, but hopefully they do come back in 2023. And if they do, we will talk about them here on the podcast Ben, to pivot to one of your recent stories, uh, going back to St. Paul, you know, kind of wrapping up everything you did in the Midwest. St. Paul was one of the places you visited for the first time, and you got to meet somebody who, on in your story, is called an usher tainer, Sego Masabuchi. What can you tell us about Sego?
2: Yeah, well, he's more than that. Uh, um, You know, as I write in the story, yeah, he's an usher tainer. He's also the team, the St. Paul Saints' director of international development. And he ran a ballpark marathon earlier this year. He's a hard guy to pin down Sego Masabuchi um, you know, from Japan, from Tokyo originally. And um, I first became aware of him when he ran a, the ballpark marathon in May. And knowing that I was going to St. Paul, I just kind of had him on my radar. Like, I want to learn about this guy and, and who he is because it's a kind of a minor league baseball career uh, that, that you can't really sum up succinctly. But basically, Sego, he grew up in in Japan, um, did not want to, you know, take over his father's, you know, construction business, which he was expected to do, you know, as the eldest son. Um, Got to know America a little bit uh, through an aunt of his who had married an American. They had spent time in Minnesota. Uh, He ends up going to the University of Minnesota, uh, is majoring in journalism, and he's doing liaison work. Uh, between Japanese companies and American companies, you know, as an example, he said, you know, maybe 3M, you know, who are based in Minnesota, you know, he would net he would help them get in touch with Japanese distributors and, and that kind of work. So he's doing that kind of work, and that leads to an inquiry from Japanese media, who are saying, "Hey, this team, the St. Saint Paul Saints, uh, you know, we want to cover them. Can you you know maybe facilitate that? Uh, because the St. Saint Paul Saints, you know, they started in 1993." Um, as a distinct alternative to the nearby Minnesota Twins, you know, it was an anything goes, promotional philosophy, uh, Mike Veck, you know, Bill Murray, uh, Gold Clan Group, ownership. Um, so they were getting a lot of attention, similar to maybe how the Savannah Bananas are now. Um, Sago helps facilitate Japanese uh, media coverage And then that leads to this sort of director of international development role with the team. You know, it's a part time role. It's just something he's done incidentally when needed. Uh, You know, that Japanese media coverage led to, um, you know, players in Japan wanting to come play for the Saints. He helped facilitate that. And then meanwhile, his mother had owned a karaoke bar growing up. And uh, that leads to him singing karaoke at Saints games, in addition to being director of international development and every single St. Paul Saints game. They have a you know sing around with Sago segment where he does a karaoke song atop the dugout. You know, he's wearing a sport coat with blue rhinestones and like an Indiana Jones type fedora, just like a real goofy character. So director of international development, sings karaoke every game. And about 10, 12 years ago, he started running marathons just as something he wanted to do. And he had initially the idea that he would run his 100th marathon at the ballpark at mm-hmm. CHS Field, which has a... Um, you know, a 360 degree concourse, but then COVID happened. And it didn't just happen in that he had to stay at home. He got COVID and he got it really bad. He was in the hospital. So then he, you know, when he recovered uh, enough to run a marathon, he said, okay, I'm not waiting for my hundreds. I'm doing my, he called it you know, his comeback from the dead marathon um, at, at the ballpark and uh, he wanted to give it a, you know, make it meaningful, give it a charitable component and, um, Mike Vec, his daughter, died in 2019 of a rare disease called Batten disease. His daughter Rebecca. So when Sago ran this marathon, it was for uh, to benefit uh, Batten disease research and funding. And so he was able to raise thousands and thousands of dollars through running this ballpark marathon, which is 84 laps. These are officials from you know, U.S. Track and Field came, made it official. They measured the concourse, determined it was 84 laps, and he ran it. You know, it started before the game, but he ran. During this, during a game, and you could bid to be a pacer uh, for a lap, you know, and, and, and have a one lap around the ballpark with Sago. He actually sang karaoke at one point when he was running the marathon. Uh, I see you grimacing, Sam, as a runner. And he said, you know, I'm not a runner. I ran one five K once, though. Um, but he said it was a really tough marathon because the concrete it was only on concrete Mm -hmm. you know concourse asphalt whatever that specific material is and he was only ever running in you know one direction uh there's no you know pivots and on the track uh no chance to kind of move the body and then tilt it in another direction a little bit. Uh, But he said it was also one of the most meaningful things he ever did because, uh, you know, the the support from the crowd, the money that was being raised, uh, you know, to benefit a great cause that he had a direct connection to, the fact that he had had health issues and didn't know if he could run a marathon again. So anyway, to go to St. Paul, that's the kind of guy you got to write about, Sego Masabuchi, the director of international development slash between-inning karaoke singer slash ballpark marathon runner. And who knows what else? He said he's working on a soju bar concept at the ballpark oh, now uh, with a guy who used to own a, the Nagasaki Saints. Like the Saints became so popular in Japan, they once had a sister team in Nagasaki.
1: Things go deep. I know. This is one of those stories. Uh, you know, We're always telling people to go check out Ben's stuff and to read it, and you definitely should do that to get even more from Sago here. But just to see this rhinestone jacket yeah. is tremendous. And the hat, like you said, it's Indiana Jones style. Uh, it doesn't really fit, but it also fits incredibly well. I, r- I really like it. Uh, one thing before we move on from this story, director of international development is I think something I've never heard from a minor league team. Uh, how much is this kind of unique to St. Paul and the fact that how much does it kind of help that they are in a bigger metropolitan area compared to some of these other minor league teams?
2: I think that helps. And it's also just very unique to Sago in St. Paul and, um, that you know this he he has his own company still does a lot of that kind of liaison work Uh, who knows what else Uh, so it's a part-time job um, that I think is more just you know when they when they need him for something Uh, but yeah I've never seen a minor league front office with that role in any way shape or form you know however the job was structured Um, because obviously and it helped that he started that job when the Saints were in, in independent teams so they were in addition to all the promotions and marketing and everything else that was, you know, on an independent team, you're also, you know, creating your rosters. Um, obviously now um, if you're a director of international development in baseball, almost certainly you're working on the player side of things and, and that sort of thing, but to do it uh, the way he did was uh, unprecedented and um, yeah, just a really unique baseball career. Yeah, no, definitely
1: for sure. And um, you know, these are, are some of the great Ben Hill stories from the road, uh, that I think you know, you have to be there and experience somebody like Sego to really get these stories. Just one more time, we we teased it a little bit last week, but your next road trip is is
2: coming up in a week and a half now. Uh, what is today? We are recording. Oh, well, well, it doesn't matter what today. Today is, is. Yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, we're recording this a bit early because actually, I will. My next trip is not a ballpark trip, but I'm going on a little vacation. I guess my own All Star break. Hmm. I used to never go on any vacations during the season. It was sacrilege. But now I have a family and I have to make decisions that go beyond myself, which is not cool. But anyway, I'll be out of town uh, going to uh, your neck of the woods, Sam, broadly I, speaking. I feel like you're struggling to pronounce it. Right I now. am. I'm <laughs> just hoping you say it. I'm going to. Uh, no, you need to say it first. Glou- Gloucester. 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 I'm going to Gloucester. At least you didn't pronounce the C this time. Yeah, for, uh, for four nights. And then I'm going to get back. I didn't call it Gloucester or Gloucester or right. whatever. Yeah. Uh, then I get back, I'll be back in uh, back home for about one day. And then the next trip starts uh, to, uh, I think I mentioned on, on on last week's episode, but of course I'm going to mention it again, Oklahoma city, July 27th, uh, the Dodgers, Tulsa drillers, July 28th and uh, Wichita Wind surge July 29th and 30th. Um, that'll be my first time in Wichita. And they're the only, team the wind surge the only ballpark riverfront stadium that i have currently not been to so looking forward to finally getting there and then saying once again i've hashtag been everywhere so that trip starts on uh tuesday july 26th and we'll go through the remainder of that week and uh yeah i'm looking forward to it so that is uh coming up soon after my little uh, my own restorative little all-star break vacation nothing like a restorative vacation with a 16 month old (laughs) (laughs) yeah my only other uh
1: piece of advice if you go to Gloucester well two pieces of advice one is obviously get the seafood because it's never going to be fresher but two uh do you know what movie was based out of Gloucester Massachusetts huh
2: um
1: there might be several yeah but the one that there's one that comes to mind
2: I can't think of one off the top of my head um
1: it's not hmm. that it's not this movie that I'm currently looking up so don't look at my screen okay yeah, well and you know it, it was this one it was the the most recent best picture winner, Coda, was based in Gloucester, Massachusetts I
2: wow, had no idea uh,
1: but the movie I am thinking of is the perfect storm,
2: oh, which yeah. is based
1: off a book yeah um but my piece of advice is if you see George Clooney and he's captaining a ship and he's offering to take you into the Atlantic, say no George Clooney. I've seen this movie before, not not in Gloucester <laughs> say thank thank you, George Clooney, for the offer, but no thank you yeah or Mark Wahlberg Either of the
2: two. Not today, George.
1: Not today, George. Not today. We need you back here and on the road next week. Um, So, like you said, by the time we'll talk, you'll probably be on the road.
2: Yeah, I guess we will. I'll I'll be talking to you guys in uh, Tulsa, probably. There we go. Yeah, I look forward to it. Hopefully the phone does not melt. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, many dangers between now and then.
1: But, uh, yeah, we'll catch you next week, Ben.
2: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Big thanks to Ben for stopping by, as always. And uh, we are nearing the start of the second half of the 2022 minor league season. We're recording this on Thursday, the 21st. So if you're tuned in on Friday, on the day our episode drops, uh, the minor league second half of the season begins tonight. And there are so many storylines heading into the second half of this season, one of which is determined by one of the biggest headlines at the major league level. And that is... Uh, The Juan Soto saga, Juan Soto uh, and the Washington Nationals kind of getting set for a divorce, perhaps it seems as Soto turned down um, some pretty big money from the Nationals uh, betting on himself to be worth even more. And man, if there is one thing that we have learned over the last few years, it is not to bet against Juan Soto. (laughs) uh, He is a guy who um, I think has still, you know, the amount of first round and an upper echelon draft selections that we're older than Juan Soto is still stunning. Like that's how young Juan Soto is. Um, But with the potential that a Juan Soto deal could be coming, there are so many minor leaguers now who become uh, guys that are in the spotlight as, okay, is this person moving? I saw you know, a tweet yesterday from a journalist that there's a lot of discussion uh, that one of our guys, Francisco Alvarez, could be on the move uh, as the Mets try to lock up uh, not only the National League East, but potentially a run of the World Series. Uh, Sam, the, the second half, the approach to the trade deadline – so much of this is going to be viewed through the prism of whatever happens with Juan Soto. How do you see this playing out now?
1: Honestly, and I have no inside information on this, but just looking at what needs to happen with with Juan Soto to get him traded, he has two and a half years left before he becomes a free agent. That's a big reason why, like he's—I don't think he's taking a that lot deal of because team control. It, right, yeah, and and the contract that they were offering, you know, started with a four, which sounds eye-watering when you look at how much money that is, but also it was, I think, 13 years, something. It was a lot of years. He, he would have to basically give up the rest of his career to be in Washington. Maybe he wants to do that, but, but then you know the average annual value should be higher as well. So anyway, they're not at a point where this needs to happen. And because of that, I think the trade package that would need to happen would be crazy insane. If you want to see us go crazy over... Kumar Rocker getting drafted third overall, it needs to be that times 10. You need to say, I can't believe they gave up so many of their top prospects, so many of their major league ready assets. I, I shouldn't say assets, major league ready players. Uh, it's going to be a crazy trade to make it happen. And I, I would say that it's not going to happen. That'd be my guess. That's
0: kind of my feeling right now too.
1: Yeah, it, it certainly could. And I would love to see what that trade package would look like. Um, You know, you go back to some of the crazy trades we've seen in the past, like somebody brought up the other day, Chris Sale. Remember when that happened? It was Yohan yes, a number one overall prospect, plus Michael Kopech, who was another top 100 arm. Like there have been some crazy trades that happen. Juan Soto would break the scale completely because it needs to hurt on both sides. It needs to really hurt the the Nationals to give up two and a half years of the best young hitter we have in the game. The guy who just won the Home Run Derby, the guy who's won them a World Series. Uh, they need to get at least three or four top 100 prospects, throw in a guy who's might be graduated from being a top 100 prospect. Look at the Mookie Betts straight. Somebody like Alex Verdugo, who was a top 100 guy, but had graduated. Um, and it, again, it needs to beat Mookie Betts because Mookie Betts only had one year left. This is two and a half years. Uh, it, it's going to be fascinating if it happens. You look at somebody like the St. Louis Cardinals, maybe, who could pull it off. Even though the Cardinals have a lot of outfield options, they don't have Juan Soto. So if they were willing to give up a Jordan Walker plus a Mason Win plus like a Gordon Grissafeo plus a Tink Hens something like that, like you have to keep adding pieces. It's not going to just be like does Jordan Walker do it? Jordan Walker's great. We love Jordan Walker. He's not <laughs> going to be Juan Soto on his own. Um, it's just going to be fascinating to to see how that's going to kind of go down. I really think the nationals are in a place where they say, Hey, listen, this is our price you paid or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we get to a place where this was just a fun thing to talk about, uh, in the middle of the season, the Dodgers could maybe do it. They don't have like a universal top 10 prospect, like a Jordan Walker, but a Diego Cartaya is really good. Um, they have Lord knows they develop arms really well. Um, they have a lot of guys pointing all the way up Bobby Miller um Gavin Stone's been really good for them this year they have enough pieces to make it sense it's just they may not have that true headliner like the Cardinals I don't know I we'll see how this is going to go down in the week's head because it's also going to be a lot of teams trying to decide if they're contenders or not and whether the middle of the season is when you want to make this trade.
0: Yeah, I think the the key element to it is what you pointed out, which is that the Nationals have a lot of time to work with here. It's not as though Juan Soto is going to be a free agent this offseason and the Nationals have to get something for him right now at the deadline. Um, they've still got two and a half years to, to work on something here. And, you know, I'm not entirely convinced he leaves Washington. I think uh, right now, especially with the way that after that news broke, Juan Soto seemed uh, very frustrated by the fact that it had gotten out in public. That makes me think this is not a guy who's just turning down a deal because he needs to get out of Washington. Um, You know, I think there is still a strong possibility that something gets worked out to keep him there. Uh, You know, I don't have any intel on that and don't know for sure whether the Nationals are going to pony up more money than that. But um, I think there is a strong possibility that, that Juan Soto ends up sticking around anyway you know but it certainly gives us a lot of fuel for conversation uh heading toward the the trade deadline this year uh and potentially next year too. uh so with all of that in uh in the sense of play for the second half of the season what else are the biggest themes as we approach the second half of 2022 on the minor league side.
1: Yeah, I mean it's going to be a lot of who gets called up in the second half. Uh we mentioned Francisco Alvarez of he would have to be a headliner in a one soder trade. I, I still don't think the Nats trade him to the Mets as much as the Mets might want a Juan Soto. Uh, that you would have to imagine there's a tax for being in the same division. Yeah. So let's say that it doesn't happen. Francisco Alvarez stays in New York Met. He's at AAA right now, had a great first half at, at AA, um, looked okay at, at, in the Futures game. Again, it was only seven innings. He didn't play that much. But yes, there might be some questions about him defensively. The Mets have a pretty big hole at DH. And when you have a guy whose best asset is his hitting ability, he might be one of the 10 best hitters in the entire organization, not just the farm system, the organization right now. And if you're the Mets and you're really making a run this year and you're trying to you know, become World Series champions for the first time since 1986 and you think this is a special group, maybe you turn to Alvarez. Maybe you say, hey, listen, if we just let you hit, do what you do best we think you can play at the major league level. I'm going to be fascinated to see how that kind of plays. Um, another one I'll throw out there is Corbin Carroll. Like again, somebody who is in the, the conversation and it's a deep conversation for who is the number one overall prospect in the game right now. Corbin Carroll's in that group. Another guy who has reached triple a, the D backs are definitely not contending in the second half, but they've also really liked to push him aggressively and give him challenges that happened last year at high a when they moved him to high a despite being a a high school guy he got hurt pretty quick but then they pushed him to the major leagues and were like hey we want you around scouts then after only a handful of games at high a last year they moved him to double a he's passed that test now he's at triple a maybe they realize like hey this guy does best when we challenge him if we just let him languish we're not going to get the best corbin carroll that we want maybe it's best if we give him a taste of the majors and that would be huge for arizona in the second half it would Give fans something to watch, someone to watch, someone to follow. Um, so that would be really interesting. And also, w- what are the Orioles?
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah,
1: is this team you know, uh, like, a
0: legit contender, uh, or is this team that's still you know a step or two away in a rebuilding process? Yeah, I think that's a very valid question.
1: Yeah, like DL Hall is is basically major league ready now. I think he's he's getting strikeouts almost by the dozens in starts. Um, He's working deeper into starts. That was a big thing for him coming into the year after some injury issues. So he definitely seems like he's going to Baltimore soon, but also if you get to a point where you're the Orioles and you're three games out of a wild card spot come August, September, do you look at adding Gunnar Henderson? Like Jorge Mateo is a good defensive shortstop right now. He's not a good hitter. Gunnar Henderson's a very good hitter. He's super young for the triple a level. He'd be even younger for major league level. But again, like, why not? Well, give it, give it a shot with this young core. Like, let them play together now and especially play meaningful games in September, which have not happened in Baltimore in a long time. There's a lot, a lot of time between now and then. A lot a lot could change. They could go on a, a slide and, and be like three games under 500 come September, and this isn't a conversation anymore. But it's a conversation now, and it's fun to talk about, it, especially for years we've been saying that we hope the O's would turn the corner, and now it seems like they're almost there.
0: Uh, another team that i think a lot of people have been cheering for to turn the corner for a while is the Seattle Mariners and as of July 1st the Mariners were 37 and 42 five games back of a wild card spot they have since rattled off 14 wins in a row they are one game up on Toronto for the final wild card spot uh in the American League and uh or for the the second wild card spot in the American League i should say with the the revamped postseason format um three wild card teams in each league this year but um what do the M's do? You know, do the M's become a player as well? Because they've got such a good young core right now. They're trying to build a contender around. Did they make a splash and go out and try to find somebody uh, who can add a, a big boost to that team as they make a run uh, here through July? Um, the Mariners clinched a winning July on July sixteenth. Like, that's how good this team has been so far this month. You know, Tampa Bay continues to make strides. Um, They're at 10 games over 500 now and a game and a half up uh, in that wild card race. Uh, So, you know, things can change in a hurry. That, That Mariners team had to leapfrog a whole bunch of teams between July 1st and July 15th to get where they are, and they did it. So do we see something where... You know, the White Sox who have been hanging around 500, did they make uh, a run of some sort? Um, Yeah, the Orioles are are maybe the most fascinating case study in baseball right now on the American League side, certainly. Um, So there is a whole lot. Uh, to keep in mind, they said during the all-star broadcast that over half of the teams in Major League Baseball are within three and a half games of a playoff spot um, coming into the uh, the stretch out of the all-star break. And, you know, yes, is that due in part to the fact that there's uh, an additional wild card slot? Yeah, to a certain degree, but, you know, it's it's exciting to have more teams than not in the playoff picture. And right now it's a, a five team race for the three wildcard spots in the National League um, with St. Louis and San Francisco. St. Louis effectively tied with with Philly uh for that final wild card spot. And then the Giants are a half game out. Um, but with with everybody else, you know, in the American League, there are four teams within three and a half games of that final wildcard spot. So it makes a whole lot more buyers than sellers, one would presume. And, uh, you know, we'll see what that means as we get uh, closer to the trade deadline and what it means for prospects. But this is going to be a very fun second half on the major league side and the minor league side. Um, Anything else people are are keeping an eye out for in the second half on the minor league side? You know, we've got guys who are stealing bases like crazy, which is something that we uh, had seen go way, way down uh, in baseball over the last several years. And, you know, the minor leagues being no exception to that. But obviously the larger bases, the things that have been tried out um, for, uh, you know, the, Impetus of increasing offense. Um, you know, I was writing up a, a piece the other day for the hottest hitters uh, in minor league baseball going into the break and was looking at Zach Veen in the Colorado Rockies organization. Zach Veen has successfully stolen, I believe, 41 of 43 bases this year. Uh, and he is not even in the top 10 in steals in minor league baseball. Uh, well, he's technically tied for 10th, uh, but you've got uh, Esther Ruiz. Uh, in the San Diego Padres organization who has already stolen 60 bags. Um, there is some really interesting things happening statistically in minor league baseball. Uh, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. You've got a couple of guys uh, in the minors who have 26 home runs each in Moises Gomez uh, and a Nicholas Northcut. Um, you know, there's always fun stuff to, to keep tabs on.
1: And I, I feel bad now for not having said this immediately, but the pie slice rule. Oh, right, 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 right. Is literally starting. The day this podcast Tomorrow. is starting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So technically be... when you're listening, it's today. And explain the rule. Uh, for those who have not read the story or heard the uh, the news update.
1: So the pie slice rule is coming to the Florida State League, and it's almost exactly what it sounds like. There is going to be an area behind second base, it's and they're going just to gonna look look throw like pie,
0: pie, slice. pie slices everywhere.
1: <laughs> it's exactly
0: what, it's insane. It's really
1: muddy up the middle of the field. <laughs> um, but no, but it basically shortstops and second basemen cannot play in the in the middle of the dirt like that they can't line up directly behind second base it's another way of trying to test out a rule that would limit um shifts you know there's there's been some shifting stuff about you can only you can have two fielders on either side of the Second base bag well now we're not even saying You can be up the middle you have to be on Either side of this pie slice.
0: It's you know a continued Use of the minor leagues as a testing Ground for all this type of stuff which is positive You know I mean we've we've right. seen so many different Rules uh, you know from the pitch Clocks and automatic ball strikes and um, You know the widening of the bases as we talked About and all those different sorts of things we used to see It only in the Arizona Fall League things like that um, But now seeing it in the minor Leagues and the FSL of course is Such a, uh, a easy spot to do it because the mechanisms are there to monitor how it works with you know stat cast and and cameras and all the stuff that's set up for major league spring training um it makes the most sense to try it out in a league like the fsl but i'll be really interested to see how that plays out
1: yeah no i will too and uh will batting average on balls and play go up like that we've seen some of these right rule changes happen and then it's like hasn't had the effect you would think it would which is why you test it out like you won't know until it plays um so are many balls up the middle really being stolen by shifts is like this the problem here we'll we'll have to see um and i'll keep a close eye on that
2: so
0: that's what's coming up for the second half of the minor league baseball season as we kick things off on friday july 22nd and uh we're back to wrap up the show after ghost of the minors coming up next This podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. <laughs>
3: in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst of the fraudulent pair. One once played Class C and Class D ball. If you guessed the others, you get an F. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Adrian Yeggs. B. The Bayonne Uggs. C, the Calgary Oz. Yeg gotta believe the correct answer is A, the Adrian Yeggs, who competed in the Southern Michigan League of 1909 and the Southern Michigan Association of 1910 and 1911, and who present a bit of an etymological mystery from history. Yeg or Yegman is a slang term for, most generally, a professional criminal, usually a burglar or most specifically a safe cracker to the extent yegg lives on today it's largely because of the classic autobiography you can't win by jack black which was first published as a serial in the san francisco call bulletin in the mid-1920s and which details black's adventures in housebreaking and jailbreaking as a yegg or member of the johnson family or johnson all terms for hard-scrabble-no-goodniks, from the 1880s until Black saw the error of his very fun ways and made good as the call bulletin's librarian in the 1920s. In a few baseball reference works, the Adrian Yeggs are said to have gotten their name from a person who was an inmate at Adrian, Michigan State Prison at the time of their 1909 debut. This was purportedly James Yeggs purportedly a famous safe-cracker. However, evidence for the existence of James Yeggs, or even the legend of a James Yeggs, is hard to come by. In fact, as early as 1903, an Ohio newspaper item claimed the term Yegg dated back to the time of the arrest of John W. Yegg, the first traveling professional safe-blower, which, Given the commonality of safes throughout the United States for much of the 19th century, may easily have been 50 years prior if it occurred at all. Furthermore, in the fall of 1913, just four years after the Eggs baseball team was supposedly named after a man supposedly then in custody in Adrian, the Detroit Times ran an article about the arrest of two Yeggs, James Carroll and Louis Muzio in Adrian and the story makes no reference to the alleged Jaeg namesake. All of this makes it unlikely, although not impossible, that the Adrian Jaegs were named for a prisoner in Adrian at the time. A more convincing theory of the origin of Jaeg for burglar or safecracker is that it has its roots in the German word Jaeger, or hunter. And dates to the middle and late-middle 19th century, when over a million German immigrants came to the United States with many chasing riches or trying to avoid poverty in the Old West. It's easy to imagine a German-born prowler in search of a safe terming himself a Jaeger, and his American gangmates referring to him as the Jaeg, and the neologism would spread from there. But, I don't mean for my talk of jewel thieves to steal your attention away from the yeggs of the diamond. This much is certainly true. In the early 20th century, Adrian had both an industrial reform school for girls and a 14-room prison that the State Board of Corrections and Charities had called among the best jails in Michigan in 1897. Yeggs, whether for an individual or for the then common slang broadly meaning burglars, was a playful glamorization of the bad boy lifestyle repurposed for a field moniker, brought into a league that already featured the Jackson Convicts, named for Michigan State Prison in Jackson. These Yags, though, couldn't get away with a thing, the inaugural Yeggs team did feature infielder Carl Vandegrift, who grifted not a van nor anything else for Adrian that year, when the Ott 9 Yeggs finished ahead of only the lowly Battle Creek Crickets. When Vandegrift was promoted to the Yeggs manager for 1910, a title again escaped his sticky fingers. The Yeggs of 11 were no great club either, but they did have a master thief. Dan Jenkins led the league with 76 stolen bases. But when Adrian took on a loose affiliation with the nearby Tigers in 12, the club began to be called the Lions. And that's how the eggs cracked up. Now onto the question for next time. Which of these teams stood alone in the minors of yesteryear? A, the Concord self-reliance. B, the Lubbock loners. C, the corning independents. Want to know the answer? Spend a little me time. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is on vacation, and I've got to ruin it.
0: Welcome to this week's episode of the show before the show. Again, you can get in touch podcast at milb.com. Uh, and You can find us on social media. Sam's a Sam doctor, milb. I am at Tyler Mon and uh, Sam Milb TV, where you can catch all of the best talent across minor league baseball. What are you watching this weekend slash next week?
1: Yeah. So this one is pretty immediate. Uh, the show comes out Friday, the next day on Saturday, I will be down in Durham, North Carolina, for our MLB Pipeline Game of the Month. I'll be down there with Kelsey Hennigan, as I mentioned earlier in the show. I'm really excited for that one. A, for the matchup, it's Durham against Norfolk. So we'll be getting Curtis Mead on one side. Um, We'll be getting Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg on another side. It'll be really fun to watch all those guys play. um, But we're going to be providing lots of cool content around that game. We're going to be doing a pregame Instagram Live showing you Durham Bulls Athletic Park, one of the cooler stadiums in all of minor league baseball, one of you. Many of you have heard about before, if you've ever seen Bull Durham, slightly different park, obviously, but still some cool historic notes there. Um, so we'll be taking you guys through that. I'll be doing an Instagram live with Curtis Mead, a and a with him. That'll write up for the site on MLB.com. Hoping to get Taj Bradley. He's now at, at AAA as well. Um, we'll be doing a pitching lab story with him. Um, so lots of cool stuff around that game. We'll also be appearing on the broadcast for a little bit, but do recommend that everybody tune in. Regardless, even if that was an MLB pipeline game of the month. Uh, it's just really cool matchup and, and a, you know, and two and AL East affiliates, um, two teams that should be going for it in the second half, like we said earlier, between the O's and the Rays. So a good chance to watch some of those guys on the farm on Saturday. Tyler, what are you looking at? Jason Dominguez is up with the Hudson Valley
0: Renegades at high A. The Renegades are on the road at Wilmington this weekend, but then they're back home coming up on Tuesday the 26th to take on Brooklyn. So not only do you get to see Jason Dominguez in his new home ballpark on MILB.TV, but you also get to see him against a Mets affiliate. Um, so that's fun. Uh, watch the Martian. Get excited about him. And uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the show before the show. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mott. We'll talk to you next week. We'll be